If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 1. We'll be at uh, verses 14 through 15. As a side note, uh, pray for your pastor. Uh, I don't know what convinced me to go play basketball with some guys from Redeemer yesterday morning and work out the day before that. And so I'm up here sore. <laughs> so pray that the Lord gives grace. Uh, if you're new to Redeemer, we're making our way through the book of Mark. And uh, hopefully we'll spend the next uh, several months making headway in uh, one of my favorite gospels. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. As a side note, um, I think you have to understand Mark through the lens of Isaiah. I think there's a lot of uh, themes from Isaiah that Mark is picking up upon. And two are particularly important here in our passage this morning. The first thing, uh, which was Trey read from the book of Isaiah, when uh, Isaiah, when, and Isaiah talks about the people who lived in great darkness have seen in great light. And it talks about the Lord shining light in Galilee of the Gentiles. And so when Mark starts his gospel, guess where Jesus starts his earthly ministry? It's not in Jerusalem. It's in Galilee, which in that day was one of the most diverse parts of the Middle East. And so there's something there. But also in Isaiah, uh, I think it's Isaiah 59, I think, when it says, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news, that that's almost identical to what's happening in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is coming into Galilee with good news. And so uh, I think you got to understand Isaiah. Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we turn our hearts to your word and do pray that you would speak through your servant to your people. Might we exalt Jesus right now. Would we leave your Lord more in love with him, more in awe of his kingdom, more aware of the way his kingdom has broken in, and it will never have an ending. Therefore, we have reason to hope. Would you be pleased to show that to us in our passage for Christ's sake? Amen. So the the fall is one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, One, because of the NFL and college football, but also because uh, you sort of get the unrolling of new seasons uh, on television. And so there's a show that I'm anxious to watch, and it's called New Amsterdam, and I think it previewed this week. But what you might not know is that the show is based off of a book written by a man by the name of Eric Mannheimer, and it's about a real hospital in New York called Bellevue Hospital. And the reason that hospital is important, one, it's one of the oldest in the country, but two, uh, a lot of groundbreaking medical advancements happened there first. Uh, they, They treated the first person with Ebola. They're also famous for just the, the, the different types of people that they treat. On the one hand, the uh, inmates from Rikers Island will get care at that hospital. The poor and the homeless also get care at that same hospital. And some of the wealthiest people in the world travel to the same hospital for groundbreaking care. And so this, 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 this show is going to follow this sort of new medical director that they got for the hospital because it had fallen in disarray. And on the show, in the first season of the first show, they show him uh, walking into a, a, a hall 
and he summons all the doctors to come there. And these are the first words out of his mouth, literally. He says, I want everyone who works in the cardiac surgical department to raise your hands and then stand. And so they do. And he, there's a pause. He says, great, great, great. And then he says, you're fired. All of you. And everyone is kind of gasping, like, what is this dude talking about? This is his first day. How dare these be the, his first words? And he says, any department that takes more initiative and care for patient billing than they do for patient care, you will no longer be employed at my hospital. In other words, he was saying that they cared more about getting money than offering care. And he says, there's a new sheriff in town. If this is the way you're functioning, you do not have a job here anymore. And so you learn from those opening words. I mean, that's the very first thing out of his mouth. You learn a lot, not just about his character. You learn a lot about what things will be like with him in charge. You learn it from the first the conversation. Here's what you might not know. When you read Mark chapter 1, our passage that we're in this morning, these are the very first words of Jesus. The first thing Jesus says in Mark's gospel is right here. Up until this point, Mark has been narrating what John the Baptist preached and what Jesus did and what the Father in heaven said about Jesus when Jesus was baptized. Up into Mark's gospel, Jesus has been silent. And then you get to this passage we're in this morning, and these are the first words out of the mouth of Jesus. I want to make the case to you that they are important. They're starting to show us his character. They're going to show us what his earthly ministry will be like. And we're getting all of this from the first words out of the mouth of Christ. And here's one word I want you to remember today about Jesus. And it's, it, it's he's good. Goodness. It's the first thing coming out of his mouth is goodness. And so what I want to do is sort of unpack this idea of the goodness of Jesus through the lens of the text. The first thing we learn about Jesus is he is a king who comes with good news. And so if you're writing notes, you, that's what you write. He's the king who comes with good news. Now, it's obvious, right, when you, when you read the passage, it says after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee and he was proclaiming the gospel of God. And Jesus was saying, quote, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so two times in those two verses, you see the same word repeated, and it's the gospel. And so Mark is saying when Jesus shows up in Galilee, he comes proclaiming the gospel. And then the words that come out of Jesus's mouth is the gospel. Now, here's where we got to pause and say, wait a minute. What, is, what does Mark mean and what does Jesus mean when they say that Jesus comes preaching the gospel? Here's how we normally think when we think about the gospel. We think about the content of the gospel, right? We think about the message of the gospel. We, we might think that Jesus shows up in Galilee and he asks the two diagnostic questions from evangelism explosion, right? Raise your hand if you've taken EE. All right, so some of us, all right. And you know, it's a way to share the gospel. 
And the way you share the gospel is by asking two provocative questions. And based on how someone answers the question, then you move into the content of the gospel. And the two questions go like this. Suppose you were to die today and stand before God and and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? That's one question. The other question is, suppose you were to die today, are you sure you're going to heaven? And so we're getting at two things. One, what's your level of certainty that you will spend eternity with the Father in heaven? And then what is your confidence? In other words, if you're confident that you're going, then what is it that's going to get you in there? We're asking those two questions. And if you tell me something other than Jesus, then you're going to hear a gospel presentation. And in that gospel presentation, I'm going to tell you with the scriptures open that you're a sinner and you were born in sin. You were conceived in sin. And we're going to move to God is just. And by no means will he clear the guilty. And we're going to move to God is merciful and does not delight in sending people to hell. And we're going to move to God is gracious and therefore sent, you know, so we can go on and on. But what are we doing? We're sharing the content and the message of the gospel. Now, if you think that Jesus walks into Galilee and he's asking the two diagnostic questions and then he's going to tease that out, that's probably not what Jesus did. I'm not saying we don't need to do it. We need to be sharing the faith. But is that what this meant when Jesus used the term share the gospel? See, here's what we learn about that term gospel, which is used twice, that it, it's, it's, I won't get into semantic, like kind of what it is, but it, it, it means good news. That's what it means. That Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news. That Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. And so what we believe Jesus did is he hijacked a secular term. Up until this point, the good news was not sort of a religious term. It was actually a a geopolitical term. It was a term used by kings. And so a king, for example, would go to war and he would defeat someone in war and he would defeat the enemies of his kingdom, and there would be someone who would announce this and write this down. We have good news for you. Your king has gone to battle, and he has won, and therefore rejoice. Therefore, praise him. Therefore, worship him, right? Or it could be we have a royal decree that we have good news that the second heir to the kingdom has been born. The king has a son and he will one day rule over you with justice and equity and peace that that you can go back and read some of the first century stuff. And this is all it's out there. It literally means the, the pronouncement of good news. And if you look at our reflection quote, David Garland says that this term was abused. In other words, kings got in the habit of overpromising good blessings to people in their kingdom. And they would say, good news, good news, worship the king, come pay him this, make these sacrifices because this king has gone and done war with you, right? Well, here's the thing. You know how it was in those days. Man, your brother would knock your head off, right? Because if he want to be the king, they would just poison you. Your nephew might, might put a hit out on you. And so whatever these kings promised, it was never substantiated. It never lasted. Right? And it's against that backdrop 
that Jesus walks into Galilee and he says, I have good news for you. And it's real good news. And the initial hearers would have known exactly what Jesus was doing. He was actually proclaiming himself to be a king. And he was actually uh, prophesying that I am going to go and, and go to battle for you. And I'm going to do something amazing for you. And it is really good news. And I'm here to proclaim it. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like to be in Galilee to hear this? Some folks would have been like, yeah, right, man, we done heard this before, brother. Come on, tell me something different, right? But some folks would have been like, okay, I'm, I'm all ears. We, we, we know what he's up to. And some folks would have been hostile, right? But Jesus, nonetheless, is coming with good news. Now, I want that to sort of sink in. He came with good news, not bad news, not breaking news, not confusing news, but good news. He says, I have good news for you. I know your life is hard, but I have good news for you. I know your marriage is hard, and I have good news for you. I know you're sick and your body is weak. And I have good news for you. I know you're aging, right? And I have good news for you. And I know you lost your child in miscarriage. And I have good news for you. And I know you just buried your parents. And I have good news for you. In other words, Jesus is aware of the weariness of life. And on top of the weariness of life, he still proclaims, I have something good to tell you. I have good news for you. Now, let this sort of push against whatever preconceived notions you might have about Jesus. When we think about Jesus, what does the world think about Jesus? That he comes for, with bad news? That he, that he comes with wrath, that he comes to make you afraid, or the first words out of his mouth is, I have something good to tell you. Yeah. There you go. Who said, yeah? <laughs> that's a, hey, that's, appreciate it, brother. <laughs> it's good news. Whatever he's saying, whatever he's doing, whatever he's teaching, he wants it to be framed under this idea good. I'm here for your good. However hard life might get, I'm here for your good. Whatever I do, I'm here for your good and of course God's glory. And he wants that to be the way that he introduces himself to the world. I'm good. Now the question is, okay, Jesus, if you're good, then you got to tell me something, right? He has some big shoes to fill. If you're going to lay your goodness on top of my suffering, then your goodness has to swallow my suffering up, right? If it's really good, then your goodness has to have an effect on everything going on in my life. And that's exactly what Jesus says. The second thing is, is, is what is at the heart of his good news? Here's the thing. The kingdom of God is good in its coming. That's the second point. The time is fulfilled, says Jesus. 
The kingdom of God is at hand, or literally, the kingdom of God is near. And so notice what Jesus, I have good news, and the reason I have good news is because the kingdom of God is now here. In other words, that, that's the source of the good news. The good news is that the kingdom of God is now here. Now, notice he says the time is fulfilled. That, that, that must force us back. It forces us back in the Old Testament because for time to be fulfilled, it means that there must be some type of promise back here that God has made so that Jesus is really saying the time is now for the Father to make good on the promise of old. Now, here's the question. Have you ever waited for something anxiously, impatiently, but expectantly? Some of y'all are carrying children right now. During the Mississippi heat, and you want nothing more than for your child to get here, right? Some of you are engaged. And you can count down the days. I saw someone post something 127 days until I get married, right? That person is experiencing the anxiety of this future thing, right? Some of you, when tax time comes... And you filed them taxes, not, not the folks who got to pay, right? I'm talking about the folks who give money back, right? And income tax come back, you're ready to ball out, right? You're ready to get back your money the government has gotten from you for the last 12 months. And if you're like me, you're kind of checking it, your account to see if the money went in direct deposit, right? You know what it's like to wait for something, however trivial however important. And you know what Jesus is saying? If you can relate to what it's like to desire and to be waiting on something good to happen, then you can now understand the whole Bible. Because you see, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's actually tapping into this desire for people in the first century to want their king to come. If you read the Bible like a history book where somebody lived and died and they did this and they lived there, then it's boring and that's the wrong way to read it. But if you read it as if it's a book that's alive and there are real promises in the book that the Father makes that Jesus is going to make true, then you understand that this is God's design from the beginning to have a kingdom, to be a king over a people group in a particular place where they can dwell and rest safely from their enemies and his enemies. That was God's design from the beginning. That is what Eden was supposed to be like, a place a geography, a real place, Eden, that would have been, that would have grown and grown and grown and a real king over them, Yahweh and God's people, God's covenant people living under his blessing in a particular place. Now we know what happened. Adam and Eve ate of the tree, rebelled against their king and their king kicked them out of his land. But we also know the heart of this king. God says, I will not leave you out there forever. I will come to you. And so we see it, right? 
through Noah. We see it through Abraham. Abraham, it's going to be your lineage, your genealogy. Out of the nations, people from you will be my people. And Abraham, look, you see this land. Notice the land again. I will give you this land. And then what happens when Moses comes along? Moses gives them the law. This is how my people who are redeemed by me and I'm their king will live under me and I will give you the promised land. And so Joshua goes and fights and David fights to give Israel their land with their king, with their law, freedom from their enemies. And guess what? They rebelled again and got kicked out the land again. Why? Because the land goes hand in hand with the lordship of the king. And whenever you rebel against the lordship of the king, the king kicks you out of the land because the king is holy. But the promise of Isaiah and all the prophets is that God will gather you from across the face of the earth and bring you back into a land where he will be your king and you will live in submission to him and all of your enemies will be gone. That is how the Bible ends. It ends with God's people in God's land, with God over them, with all of our enemies defeated. And so if you were in the first century Israel, when Jesus sort of shows up, when he says the time is fulfilled, you hear what he's saying? That time is not in the future. It's right now. You catch the goodness of that? That everything you long for, it's breaking into the here and now. That's the good news. It's good in its coming. And you know what Jesus does right after this? You can turn over to the next, the same chapter of Mark. You don't have to do it. Just trust me on this. Right after Jesus announces that the kingdom has come, you know what he does? He says, just so you know that I got the name and I got the game, I'm going to back it up. I'm not blowing smoke up your noses. I'm not like these other dudes who make you false promises. I'm going to show you that I have the goods and I have the business. And so you know what Jesus does? There's a man possessed by a demon. Jesus says, get out of him. And the demon comes out, right? There's a man who is paralyzed and who can't walk. Jesus says, okay, you get up now and you walk. There's a man who has leprosy, and Jesus says, leprosy, get out of here. That, that Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and Jesus walks in there and says, woman, be healed and get up. And the Bible says she got up and she made him breakfast, right? Why is he doing the miracles in Mark 1 and 2? Because he announced that the kingdom has come in Mark 1, and he wants them to know, if you don't believe me that the kingdom has drawn near, then you believe my works, and you watch every single thing I do. Can you name something under the heavens that does not salute to me? He says, death, I'm stronger than death. The human body, I made it and it obeys me. The demonic, when I say you come out, you come out. That's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to tell the people, if you don't believe the kingdom is here, then you watch me work. Now, here's where it gets really good. I can kind of get this fact that the kingdom of God came, right? 
during this day and age when Jesus lived and you saw him casting out demons and raising the dead and himself getting off of a cross and coming, I mean, coming out of the grave. You saw him doing all this mysterious stuff, right? I, I get that. But here's my question. Does that relate to where we are now? That's the question. Because as you read the Bible, you're going to have to wrestle with that. How come this stuff happened over here, but is the kingdom still here, right here and right now? Now, here's where if you got your Bibles and you write in your Bibles, this is where you got to, I want you to write in your Bible. And I want you to underline that phrase, right? The kingdom of God is at hand or near. Underline that phrase, is at hand or near. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, do whatever you got to do. Here's why it's important. It's important because the tense of that verb is perfect tense. I know that means nothing to you if you don't know Greek. But if you go to seminary, you'll learn the beauty of the perfect tense. You see, in English, we have a present tense, right? I'm doing something right now. We have a future tense, I will do something. And we also have a past tense, I did something. But in the Greek, right, that word right there is written in the perfect tense. And you know what it combines? We don't have a category for it in the English language. It combines something that happened in the past, but the implications are true in the present. You catch that? He could have said, past tense, the kingdom of God came. He could have said the kingdom of God will come, but the way he wrote it, the kingdom of God is here now, and it has implications forever and ever and ever. And here is what that means. Wherever you live after the arrival of Christ, I don't care if it's a thousand years from now, guess what is still relevant? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that came back here is still active right here and right now. And I know we're reformed and we don't kind of know what to do with kind of the charismatic type stuff. But the charismatic people get some stuff right when it comes to the present, active, leading, initiating, working power of God here and now. Here's what this means. Scott Sauls, who wrote a book, I think it's in the book Befriend, but he tells a story of a woman who comes to church and she gets there like 30 minutes late and she's walking to the nursery and she's like cursing in the nursery while she's dropping off her kids. She's cursing at her kids. And then meanwhile, her husband is on the opposite side of the building trying to get into worship. And they say he smells like he just smoked a pack of Newports, like on the way to church. And he tells this story about a church member who kind of shunned them. And then he talks about the amazing power of God's grace, that they were both recovering addicts and him smoking cigarettes versus doing heroin or something else. He says, that's a plus in my book, you know? He says, this woman back here cursing, brother, she just want to be in church. 
Like, and he makes the case that this is the power of God at work. That woman went on to be the nursery coordinator for the church. This cursing, recovering woman ended up not only meeting Jesus, but joining the church and being so good with kids and organization that they hired her to run the nursery. He says, that's the power of the kingdom. How many of you can look at your own life and see the power of the kingdom? You know what you used to be and you know what you used to do and you don't desire the things you used to desire or do the things you used to do. It is not because you cleaned yourself up. It is because the kingdom of God broke into your life and it made you new and Jesus wrecked you up and he put you back together again, right? That, that, look, I see it on Wednesday nights. It's pouring down, raining, and we got 148 kids who walk to church. I wasn't no walking to church when I was their age, and I definitely wasn't going in no rain. My mama had to make, she had to drag me and threaten me to go to church, right? The kingdom of God is here. Some of you have been, some of you have, have been sick. And you have had cancer, and the doctors cannot explain it. And people have prayed for you and prayed for you and prayed for you, and your cancer is gone, and you better not give credit to no doctor because he didn't do that or she didn't do that. Some of your marriages are in hard places and have been in hard places. And you look at where God is right now. That is not your wit. It is not your strength. It's the kingdom of God breaking in. That's why it's relevant. And we need to see it. And we need to see it and worship the Lord for it. The third thing is there, there's a problem in this text. And so we'll move to the kingdom of God as good, even in its complexity. Did you read the problem in the text? Read this slowly again. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. You see the two things going on? On the one hand, John the Baptist is what? arrested. And you know what else Jesus is saying? And the kingdom of God is here. You're like, wait a minute, buddy. How is the kingdom of God going to be here? And your homeboy that you've been knowing since you was a kid is about to get his head cut off. But you say the kingdom of God is here. Now, when you read the rest of Mark, we're going to get to it. Mark chapter six, John the Baptist, he, he gets arrested. He is never freed again. His head is cut off. You know why? Because he's a truth teller. He does not care who he's telling the truth to. This man named Herod has taken his brother's wife and is laying with her and has moved her into the castle. And John the Baptist says, you're wrong. You're a goon. You're not right. You need to repent. And you know what Herod does? He silences the voice in the wilderness by doing what? Let's put him in jail. I'm tired of hearing him preach. You know what eventually happened? His wife, his brother's wife, 
Let's shut him all the way up. Let's chop his head completely. Now, here's what you have to reconcile. Your friend's head is on a platter. But the kingdom of God is here. What's that about? You see, the Jews thought when Jesus came, he was going to ride in there and overthrow the government and establish his kingdom. And when he did not meet that demand, the same ones yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, and, and, and laying out palm branches are the same ones later saying, crucify him, right, because he's not meeting their expectations for a kingdom. Do you see how Mark is saying the kingdom has come, but somehow in some mysterious way, it's come and it's complex. Now, how do you resolve that tension when the kingdom is here? but you get cancer. The kingdom is here, but bad things happen. How do you resolve the tension? I'll tell you how some people resolve it. On the one hand, you have some who I think will let this evil age and the evil of it and the suffering of this world, it will eclipse their view of the kingdom and they walk around here angry at God, right? Well, God, if you was really on the throne, then this stuff wouldn't be really happening. And therefore, since this stuff is really happening, I'm throwing away your kingdom, your word, your truth. It can't be real. That's a real response when these two things are happening together, right? Now, some folks, and I have my grandmother in my mind, so forgive me if I'm not trying to be offensive. But my grandmother, right? How do you resolve this tension? I can hear her saying, baby, you just don't worry about that, right? And, and her sweet little voice, well, baby, you don't question God on that. You know, just this, you kind of get to this place of, well, no, nah, we're not stepping over that edge. Nope, nope, nope. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying some people in the face of the tension choose not to engage it. Here's why I think that's dangerous. Because John the Baptist did. You remember what happened to John the Baptist? Before he was beheaded, he sent his homeboys to find Jesus. Y'all go find him. And y'all ask Jesus, are you really the Christ? Because it does not look like you're on the throne. I'm about to have my head on a platter, and it looks like Herod is on the throne. Are you really the Christ? This is what John the Baptist himself did at the end of his life. And Jesus says, you tell John everything you see me doing. In other words, Jesus meets John right there in the crux of it when he's questioning how can these two things coexist. And so here's the thing. God invites us into that. And some people are just the third way is, is we're so spiritual, you just need to have enough faith, right? Then Jesus said you can move these mountains. You just need to believe enough and pray enough. You just need to do something enough. You're not doing something enough, right? Hyper spiritual. And I think all those responses are wrong. The kingdom is complex. That Jesus can be saying it's here and his friend is arrested 
we're invited into learning some overarching things about the kingdom. And here is what we know, at least five things about the kingdom that one, it's come and it's power. Jesus says so, Jesus proved it. That's the first thing. The second thing, we know that Jesus has dealt a mortal blow to the kingdom of Satan. That's the second thing. And yet, here's what Jesus and Mark is showing us. For a season, these two ages, they overlap. For a season, the kingdom of God is running and the kingdom of the world is existing and they are existing simultaneously. And that is why good people redeemed by God still suffer. And that is why you're going to see a mixture of beauty, of glory, of grace, days where you get it and you love the Lord and you worship him and you fight your sin. And then other days where you see brokenness and sorrow and sadness and suffering. These two kingdoms are running at the same time. And here is what Jesus also says. God is preserving the earth during this time. He's keeping his saints and rescuing people out of deeds of darkness and calling them into his light. That this is a season where God is persevering and preserving the earth. And there is coming a day when your king will come back in glory and in power. And he will strike the final blow to the enemy. And his kingdom will be no more. And until that day, beloved, you and I will live in that place. Friends, beheaded, kingdom of God is here. We're going to live in that. That's a present complex reality. And here's the good news. Jesus himself submits to that own ethic of the kingdom. You see, John the Baptist wasn't the only one hauled off and killed by a king. Jesus was. He was hauled off and crucified. The kingdom is here. But the king himself would suffer the injustice and injustice of this evil earth that he he is taking his own medicine he is telling you and i to live within the ages that overlap and he himself lived within the ages that overlapped that he is telling us that we're going to suffer and he himself suffered to bring you from the dominion of darkness into his light he is practicing what he preaches And here's the promise he makes. If he has brought you out of the dominion of darkness, not heights, not depths, not things present, not things to come, not persecutions, not famines, not cancer, not divorce, not miscarriage, not somebody robbing you, right? None of that can separate you from the love of God in Christ because he has rescued you. And therefore, we can endure this evil age no matter what comes your way. Because your Savior has redeemed you. And therefore, rather than looking at what it feels like for us 
to live in this tension. I think what Jesus is inviting us into, you care about the people who don't know me. Because the day I come back is over. When I come back in my glory, there is no overlapping of the ages ever, ever, ever again. They will perish apart from me. And so while we're complaining about our own suffering, there are people who will suffer great and more than we ever will because they don't know the Lord. And so while the ages overlap, that's why we go hard. That's why we share our faith. That's why we pray. That's why we stay on our knees. That's why we plead for revival because we know that God is preserving the earth to bring his people in. You see how it works? The kingdom is complex, and even in its complexity, it is still good. Last point. The kingdom is good, and its requirements into membership for the community. I'm trying to find a C to go with it, right? The kingdom is good for membership into the community. The next logical question is, if all this is good and true, how do I get in it? Right? How do we get in it? There's a, an American Express commercial from the 80s, I think, and it's this man, and he is, um, he's missed his flight. It's raining real bad, and everybody's trying to get rerouted to whatever city, and his little girl has a performance. She's a, a little flower. I think she's like a little ballerina. And he's trying his best to get on the flight, and no one kind of gives him the time of day. And so he pulls out his American Express card, and the lady at, at the, at the uh, flight attendant booth, she sees him, and she bumps him up, and he gets to get on the flight. Well, then they also sort of arrange for a taxi to be waiting on him. And so when the flight lands, it's raining outside of the airport, and there's hundreds of people trying to get a taxi. And again, he flashes his American Express card, and he gets to get a taxi, right? And then he kind of makes it to his daughter's performance. And here's what flashes across the screen. Membership has its privileges. What are they saying? You can benefit greatly, but you gotta be a member, right? And you know what it costs to be a member? Look, I don't, I don't have an American Express and I know they got the black card that some of the rappers talk about. But here's what I, my little research says that to be, to get the American Express black or the Centurion card, you got to make $1.4 million a year. That's all, right? <laughs> you got to spend $250,000 in a lot of credit per year. Your net worth has to be $16.5 million, right? You have to have at least an 820, I think 820 score in your credit, right? Membership, right? You get the privileges. You're stranded. You show your American Express. You can get in, but guess what? Baby, you got to have some loot behind your name. Here is what Jesus says about his kingdom. You know what the entrance fee is? It's not your money. It's not how many degrees you got. It's not where you live. It's not your skin color. It's not who your parents are. Membership is really simple. You need to repent and turn from trusting in yourself. And you need to believe the good news. That's it. When I met Jesus, my credit score was a 373. I ran up two credit cards, bought rims for my car, 
paid 22% on a $19,000 Tahoe, and I was paying them $572.86 a month for 72 months. I know some of y'all are like, what did you do with your life? <laughs> I messed my life up. That's what I did, right? If I want to get an apartment, I got to put down like three months, right? <laughs> they ain't trust me, right? I couldn't be a member. I couldn't benefit. You know what Jesus says? I'll take your brokenness. I'll take your low credit score. I'll take you and you can be mine. Get tired of yourself and of your own sin. And you turn to me in faith and you're in, period. And see, I know some of y'all want me to kind of dig into the complexity of faith and I'm not going to do it today because the requirements are simple. He says, repent of your sins and you believe and you come to me. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that the bar is so low? It's like playing t-ball. It ain't trying to catch a to hit a fastball. It ain't trying to hit a curveball. It's like somebody putting a baseball on a tee and giving you a bat this big. And saying, even if you miss the ball, if you just hit the black thing that the ball is on, you get to get on the base, right? That's how low the requirements are for the kingdom of God. Why? Because he did all the heavy lifting. He obeyed where you've been disobedient and he paid the debt where you owe the debt. He says, repent and believe. There's a phrase in the black church. God is good. And all the time. And you know what? He's a good king. Whose kingdom has come and it's good. Even in complexity, it's good. And the membership requirements into the community is what? Good. Let us worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would stir our hearts to love you more. We bless you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.